Well, let me pray for us and then uh, we'll get started. Father, I ask that you guide us and help us through this time. As we open your word, there's a lot here. Um, there's, uh, there's also some things that can be uh, kind of confusing, uh, or at first glance at least. And I pray, God, you help bring clarity to your, to your word today as we read it, study it together, help us to see you, uh, and help us live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, and for, uh, for the next few weeks, actually, uh, we're going to be talking about bodies. And, uh, and thanks to, to COVID-19, uh, you may, like me, have a different body when all this is said and done with all the uh, food that we're eating inside of our houses. But we're talking about bodies, and uh, it is important uh, as we talk about that. The Bible has a lot to say, um, actually, about our bodies, uh, especially this book, our book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you've noticed through our study, has brought that up quite often. And the reason that's, that's important is because they lived in a culture, a Greek world, which is where Corinth is, uh, modern-day Corinth, and it, they lived in a Greek world, Greek culture, that really downplayed the importance of the body. It was seen as more like a, a carcass um, or something that you just kind of, you, you couldn't wait to shed and get rid of. And that, that caused two real problems in Corinth. One, it, called, it caused them to, um, to, to downplay the importance of the body in a way that they, they lived in such a way it didn't matter. The decisions they made um, in using their bodies led to all kinds of sin. That's why you'll see a lot of focus on things like sexual morality and things like that because they lived in a world that didn't believe the body mattered to God. The other thing, as we're getting into our chapter, is it also had them see a future that was very strange. Um, it was a, a future that they saw of a bodiless existence, one that we float around like ghosts uh, through all eternity. And so uh, it was a strange kind of future existence that they believed. And so Paul is addressing that. And it's important as we begin to talk about the subject that we understand that we as humans have bodies um, be, not because of some cosmic accident, uh, not because of some evolutionary uh, process, but because that's how God actually created us. Uh, he didn't have to create us that way. There was no blueprint that forced God to make us with bodies. He didn't have to. Uh, we could have been spirits floating around through space, uh, basically 7 billion uh, Casper the Ghosts, if you remember him. Uh, which would make for a very strange existence and maybe no COVID-19 now that I think about it. But uh, we have bodies because, you know what, that's what God decided. And God likes it. It's God's idea. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until, if you go back and read Genesis, it wasn't until Adam, the first human being created, it wasn't until he had a body and a spirit that he was actually called a human being. Listen to this. Genesis 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust, from the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature so so man was not complete with just a body and he wasn't complete with just a soul he had to have both what does that mean that means your body does not merely house the real you you are not a hermit crab okay your your body is all part of who you are matter of fact your body is so important to god um, that he actually, that God himself, we understand the doctrine of the incarnation, that is that God himself took on a human body, became a human being. As a matter of fact, it is so important to, to Jesus now that you as a Christian, that once you become a follower of Christ, God himself now dwells in your body. And we've learned this, right? First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? That you're not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your 
body. Now we see there, right? It's not glorify God without a body. It's the call to glorify God in your body, right? It, Jesus made much of by you in your body more so than he would be without your body. This is why one day we'll get our bodies back. We call this the doctrine of the resurrection. I know you, we usually think about resurrection. We only think about the resurrection of Christ. But the Bible, in this passage especially, has a lot to say about the resurrection of us as followers of Christ. One day, we will have eternal, glorified, sinless, physical, and I hope with more hair on my head, bodies, right? They'll, they'll have, we'll get them back again is the idea. Matter of fact, look how Paul would put this in Philippians 3. He would put it this way. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, this is our current one, to be like his glorious body, or also we would say it of his resurrection body, by the power that enables him even to subject, subject all things to himself. So as I said last week, we are promised a resurrected body on a resurrected earth with the resurrected Christ. That is, our, that is the future. We talk about the Bible as four stages, creation. You know, we talk about creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the final act. That's the final part of the gospel. That's the future. That's where we're headed. And so the question comes, do you believe that when you die, you're still alive? Do you believe that you will get your body back? Do you believe that we will have an eternal physical existence on a physical earth? The Corinthians doubted these things. Even though they, they truly believed, I believe by the passage, they believed no doubt that Jesus rose from the grave, but they doubted the implications for their own life. This is because they, they couldn't stop listening to their culture, who said basically dead people just don't come back to life. For them, the resurrection of Jesus was true, but they hadn't seen any of their family or any of their friends who had died come back to life. And so they wondered if that would even happen to them. And so Paul, Paul writes to tell them that belief in a physical resurrection of their bodies was absolutely essential to the gospel itself. He will tell us that if, that if there's no resurrection, if we're not going to get our bodies back, if all we do is go six feet under and push up daisies, if that's all that our existence is, if that is, if that is it, then we have no gospel. We have no truth, no power, no hope, and no reason to carry on. But the contrary is also true. If there is a future resurrection, then we do have hope. We have the gospel. We have truth. We have power. We have reason. So let's look at the, we'll look at it in the kind of a negative sense here of a, Paul lays out most of this passage. We're going to look at five problems that we have if there is no future resurrection for the followers of Christ and why that's important for our life now. Number one, the first problem we have is that we have no gospel. Look at verse 12. It says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, how can some of you say you don't believe that you'll rise again? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not only, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in, faith, in vain. Notice, Paul doesn't say, I've always told you, look at that, right? Look at what the Bible doesn't say. It's important to help you understand what it does say. Paul doesn't say, if there's no resurrection of Christ, our faith is in vain. That, that may be how you heard it when it was read, but that's not what he says. He actually says if there's no resurrection of the dead, meaning we're not going to be resurrected, then not even Christ has been raised and our faith is in vain. Did you hear that difference? If we won't get our bodies back, 
then Paul says Jesus didn't get his body back. And if the dead cannot rise, then Jesus did not rise. And Paul is saying we're, we're so connected to Jesus. This, this idea of the unity uh, that we have, the union with Christ, is so important that if he didn't rise bodily, then we won't. And if we won't, then he did it. That's what Paul is saying. It's, it, we're connected. So this is not a minor theological issue. This whole idea of the resurrection, the future of this, is not a minor issue. It's central. The doctrine of the resurrection is important because no matter what we do, one day death will win. Right? We can, we can buckle up. We can take vitamins. We can drink kale smoothies. We can exercise all day long, every day. But death will win. Right? You, we can't extend life indefinitely. Invariably, the ground wins and we're in it. And Jesus is the only one who has conquered death. He has come back from death. He has busted a hole through the back of death and bids us come through. But if Jesus didn't conquer death, my friends, no one's going to conquer death. It is impossible. You will not beat the grave. Right? I don't care if they freeze dry you and they bring you out and fall you in a giant microwave. You're not going to make it. Right? If death beat Jesus, then death beats everybody. Now, friends, that's not good news. That's, that's bad news. And here's the worst of the news. Look down at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in what? Your sins. And those who have fallen asleep, those who died in Christ, have perished. My friends, sin is a, is a real problem. Sin is what has broken our relationship with God. Sin is what has broken our relationship with other people. Sin is what has broken our entire world. And if we won't be raised, then Jesus didn't get raised. And that means that death wins and sin is not solved. That means that death does sting. And that means that sin does destroy. It means we are eternally separated from God and our destiny is hell. That's what ultimately all this means. It means we have to answer. Think about this. It means we have to answer for every single sin we've ever committed. We have to answer for that. Even if Jesus really did die. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, his death is meaningless. His death was pointless. There was no atonement. There is no forgiveness. He had to rise from the grave, and we too have to rise from the grave. Those things have to go together. Without our future resurrection, there is no gospel. But secondly, the second problem we have here is we have no truth. Look down at verse 15. We are even found, he says, to be misrepresenting God. That's what Paul says. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ. So we have a real problem here, right? If there's one thing that, uh, that Paul didn't want to do in his life, that was he did not want to misrepresent God. You can go back and read his story in the book of Acts, and you find that he was very passionate for, for God, even though he was very misguided, right? You get to chapter 9, he's out killing Christians because he believes that he's representing God and doing that, doing God a service in that way until he meets Jesus and he repents, right? He turns and he goes from, Paul to, from Saul to Paul. So Paul knew the consequence of being a false witness. He took it seriously. Proverbs 19.5 said a false witness, it says, will not go unpunished. And he who breathes out lies will not escape. Paul understood this. So what this means is that if the Christian's future resurrection is not real, then Christ's resurrection is not real. And therefore, Paul is saying, everything you read in the Bible is just a bunch of junk. That's the implication. It's, it's worthless. In other words, it's, it's just a book of lies. We can't know anything for sure. We might as well resort to Pinocchio's worldview, right? Let your conscience be your guide. 
Let's just stick to that, which I would remind you that most serial killers adopt that worldview and it's not a good one, right? <laughs> but that's kind of how it goes. We'd be in complete darkness. We wouldn't know reality. We wouldn't know truth. We wouldn't know if anything is right or wrong. This would also, by the way, make Jesus, in my opinion, I believe this is all, if this is true, if he didn't really rise, if we're not going to rise, that would make Jesus probably one of the worst human beings to ever exist. You say, why is that? Because he held out false hope for people, and people died gruesome. We talked about this last week. They died gruesome deaths, holding out to this hope and truth of what Jesus said was real, and that he really rose, and that we will really rise. As C.S. Lewis put it, he says, Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And I would say if there's no resurrection, then Jesus is both a liar and a lunatic. I mean, if he died, I mean, if he lied about the resurrection, then what else did he lie about? I mean, that's the questions you must ask. How crazy was this man to go through all of what he did for a lie? Bono, as in like YouTube Bono, yes, it's probably known for, as a matter of fact, I don't think there is another Bono, but in case you didn't know that, <laughs> was, he was interviewed for a book. It was called Bono, Grace Over Karma. And the guy interviewing him asked him, he talked about, didn't you think that Jesus was just a good teacher, right? He's just a good teacher. He wasn't God. He's just a good teacher, a little misled, but had some good lessons, right? Isn't him being kind of the Messiah? Isn't him rising from the dead and all that he promises? Isn't that a little far-fetched? And here was, I love, here's a little lengthy quote, but it's Bono, so let's stick with it. Here we go. He said this, no, it's not, not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that, but don't mention the M word because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no, I know. I know you're expecting me to, to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but actually I'm the Messiah. So what you're left with is this. Either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe, could have its faith, its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase? For me, that's far-fetched. That's far-fetched. Another guy, W.H. Alden, he was a poet during the early 20th century, who was part of the church. He kind of grew up in the church as a boy. By the time he left, um, as a teenager, young man, he turned to be an atheist. And then later on in his life, came back to Christ and became a Christian later on in life. And, uh, and his conclusion was, he realized that Jesus wasn't a liar and he wasn't a lunatic. He, he had to be Lord. And I love his reasoning. Here's a very one sentence. He, here's how he put it, two sentences. He says this, I believe in Jesus. Why? Because he fulfills none of my dreams. He is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. That's fascinating to think about. I, I believe in Jesus because he fulfills none of my dreams. In other words, Jesus is the antithesis of what humans would create. We want a God in our own image, right? We want a God of our own making. We want a God that, that doesn't rebuke us. He only affirms us. We want a God with a heaven and no hell, right? But if we won't be raised from the dead, here's what Paul is saying. If we won't be raised from the dead, 
then Jesus has not been raised from the dead, and we are left to just create a God in our own making, in our own image. Because the Jesus of the Bible, he's a liar and he's a lunatic. And that this is disastrous. Because we wouldn't have a clue who God is. We wouldn't have a clue what he wants from us, and we wouldn't know any idea what the future holds. It's all a shot in the dark. It's all a crapshoot. We have no idea what is going to happen. We have no handle on truth. It's a real problem. Third problem we have. There's no power. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So here we find, this is really, really important. because this, this goes along in our culture today. Here we find that Christianity does not find its purpose ultimately in what it can do for you in this life. Let me say that again. Christianity does not find its purpose ultimately in what it can do for you in this life. Christianity is not about winning 2020. It's not about helping you through COVID-19. It's not about your best life now. It's not about personal, temporal fulfillment. If all faith is, is an uplifting of your spirit, helpful for solving fears, helpful for getting you out of bed in the morning, then Paul says, if that's the only point, then there is no point. It's pointless. Its power has to extend beyond the grave for anything else to matter. Does that make sense? That's what he's going after. So that means, guys, Christianity is not a band-aid for your guilty conscience. It's not a step to a better you. It's not a wish for a half-decent and partially satisfying life. It's not to say that Christianity doesn't have benefits for this life. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying it means it's worthless for this life. It just means that if the ultimate point of it is only for this life, then it is pointless. Right? When you, when you make the temporal benefits of the gospel the point, you miss the point and you miss the gospel. Sadly, there are many churches filling up by making temporal benefits the point of the gospel, and it's not the point. And so Paul says this, says if the gospel uh, is, only gives us hope, if it only gives us help and benefits for this life, then we, he says in this text, should be pitied. That word, it means to be, uh, to be in great need of mercy, right? In great, because we're so desperate is the idea. We're just very pitiful is the idea. In essence, Paul is saying we should just hire a John Legend to see a lament about us and people should feel sorry for us, right? They should just feel sorry for us. We should be like the dogs on TikTok that everyone applauds just to see how they react and are happy. That's kind of the idea. We should just like, people should go around us and just go, oh, you poor Christians, I hope, I hope this makes you feel better. Okay, let's clap because you're so pitiful. That's what he's saying. So even if Christianity works a bit now, if it makes you feel better a little bit, if in the end it doesn't work forever, then my friends, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because life is extremely short and eternity is a really long time. So it's not about the subjectivity of it. Uh, it makes me feel better today. It's about the objectivity of is this going to get me through the grave? Is this going to get me to the other side of eternity? If Jesus is dead, the answer is no. And if Jesus didn't pass into eternity, then none of us will. And we're pitiful fools who should just embrace the narcissism of life and, and just stop medicating ourselves on false hope. All Christianity becomes ultimately, if it has no power after the grave, if that's the whole point, it's just for this life, then all Christianity really is, guys, is just a placebo pill. It just has some, some minimal effects. It may change us a little bit, make us feel a little bit better, but it has no cure for the, for the ultimate problem that we have. Guys, for the, most, 
For most of the last 2,000 years, people believed the gospel because of the eternal benefits, not the temporal ones, because life was always hard. Food was hard to come by. Disease was rampant. We live in such luxury in our Western world with our first world problems that the gospel has been lost on us in many ways. These verses here I'll read in a second don't seem to hit us as as hard as they would back then. And maybe now, maybe because of COVID-19 and what's going on, maybe these verses are starting to hit us the way they should. Listen to this, Romans 8.18. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It is eternal glory, not merely the present benefits of faith in Christ, which counterbalances the suffering that Christians may expect to endure in this life. The light and momentary troubles are seen as light and momentary only when there is a certain future, a certain glory, a certain future resurrection promised. And that is the power that has transformed people throughout the history of Christianity. Let's now see as Lewis put it. He says, if you read history, you'll find that Christians who did most for this present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. My friends, if, the problem is, though, if we, if we won't get our bodies back, then Jesus didn't get his body back, and we're powerless. There's no change. There's no hope for transformation ultimately in our life. Sadly, this leads to a fourth problem. Down to verse 20, we find that we have no hope ultimately. Verse 20 says, in fact, Christ hasn't raised from the dead, and he talks about the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So now Paul, tone, his tone changes a little bit here, right? He, he turns a little bit more a positive tone here and talks about Jesus as the first fruits. And that may sound strange. What does that mean? It's an Old Testament um, uh, phrase here, meaning the first portion of a crop that was offered to God. And so Paul uses it as a metaphor to mean that Jesus was the first one, and he was, he was the first one to experience permanent resurrection. There were other people that Jesus even resurrected himself, right? But they died again. (laughs) Jesus is the only first one who experienced permanent resurrection and that we are now the kind of the rest of the crop that will experience it in the future. This means that Jesus' resurrection was not an isolated event, but an event that kick-started the resurrection for all those who would believe. In other words, in in God's eyes, looking at it from God's perspective, our future resurrection is not separate from Jesus' resurrection, right? It's only part of the same event. Our destiny is directly tied to Jesus' destiny. He rose again, will rise again, right? Just like our destiny was directly tied to Adam. Adam, first human being, sinned, died. We sin, die, right? We're connected. That's what he says. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All right, so Adam, as our representative, threw the world into chaos when he ate that first piece of fruit, and he chose himself over God. As he swallowed that first bite of food, he, no doubt things started to happen and were very strange. 
Instead of having a, a dream come true, he experienced a nightmare. Instead of light, he experienced darkness. Instead of love, he experienced shame. And instead of joy, he experienced sadness. Him and Eve surely had their eyes opened, as Satan said they would, but not at all how they were thinking. As a result of what happened then, everything would start to unravel. Everything would become undone. Everything would become, start to go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was supposed to last forever. Right? This was the birth of disease, disaster, and decay of all things. Insects and other creatures would now become annoying pests. Our rule over the animal world would uh, be superficial at best, you know, achieving it by intimidation. If you don't obey me, I'll, I'll eat you, I'll wear you kind of thing. But even that wouldn't work all the time, and sometimes humanity would become the feast. Think about it. Now, a mouse can frighten us. A microscopic disease that we can't even see can kill us. Our own dogs bark at us, right? I mean, we our reign over over the, the the over the world as God gave it to us is sad and pathetic and pitiful, right? That's what it is. All because of sin. Now nature itself has become destructive. Floods, earthquakes, droughts, famines, other natural disasters everywhere. We're starving, bleeding, crying, and suffering all over the globe. We plant, but we're unsure if we'll reap. We build cities, we build houses and monuments but they're all subject to go down in one earthquake, one massive storm, or at best the laws of entropy take over and it all falls apart. Nothing that we do really lasts. And the sad, honest truth is that we're now masters of nothing because sooner or later, as I said earlier, we lose. Why? Because death wins. Death takes it away. It triumphs everywhere. Death strikes babies, teenagers, young adults, midlifers, empty nesters right? The elderly. It scoffs at our medicines, our surgeries, our diets, our vitamins, our exercise routines. When all is said and done, everyone dies. Scientists die, politicians die, doctors die, nurses die, farmers die, pastors die, students die. That's how it goes. The rich die, the poor die, the good die, the, the, the evil die. That's why John Piper put it this way. He said, death is not subject to man and therefore nothing is ultimately subject to us. Because it's only a matter of time till it will all be taken away from us and what we thought we had mastered will be ripped out of our hands. That is our connection, sadly, to Adam, the first human. He was our representative. And sadly, we all inherited death because of his fall into sin and our fall into sin. And if, that is, and if, that, if that's all we got, if that's it, if that's all we got is in a relationship to Adam and that's it, then we have no hope. But Paul says, this is the good news, Jesus stepped in. He became our new representative, right? So that those who have faith in him will inherit a resurrected life because of his defeat of death. But again, if we won't get our bodies back and Jesus didn't get his body back, then Adam and his sin wins and Jesus and his perfection loses and the future hope of the world being set right and having a new earth to live on is all just a lie. We're hopeless. Look what he says in verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. then it is coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, he talks about, and he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because we long for that day, don't we? We long for that day when our enemies, when sin and hell and Satan will be put under the feet of Jesus and ultimately conquered, never to harass us, never to harm us or torture us again. And Paul says, though, very interesting, the last enemy is what? Death. It's the ultimate enemy, because if death wins out, that means 
Sin, hell, and Satan win. Jesus had to defeat death, not just by him rising from the dead, but by ultimately raising us as well. He has to ultimately destroy death because, guys, death was never part of the original design. Death only exists because of sin. It is unnatural and it is a curse. We were meant originally to live forever on this earth with no sin, but sin destroyed all of that. So if Jesus rose again, we will rise again, then that means death loses. That means death just becomes like sleep. It's referenced here in this passage, right? It just becomes like sleep. Or I love how Psalm 23 puts it. It becomes a shadow. Psalm 23 is familiar to many people, even if you're not super familiar with the Bible. You probably recognize Psalm 23, at least some of the words in there. And in that psalm, he talks about God walking with us, not through the valley of death, but it says God walks through us, walks with us through the valley of the what? The shadow of death, right? It speaks of death as a shadow. A shadow of a, a dog can't bite you. The shadow of a sword cannot kill you. And the shadow of death cannot destroy us. One of my favorite stories, I've shared this with you before, uh, was a, a pastor named Donald uh, Barnhouse. Um, he was a pastor. His, his wife died of cancer uh, in her mid-30s. He had three children under the age of 12 at the time. And he tells a story about how he was heading uh, in the car to the funeral with his kids, and they're asking questions about, about mom and what happened to her and about death. And he was struggling to try to find a, an illustration, trying to help them, their young minds understand the ramifications of death, but also of the gospel. And here's what he said. He said this, I was driving with my children to my wife's funeral where I was to preach the sermon. As we came into one small town, there was in front of us a truck that came to stop before a red light. It was the biggest truck I ever saw in my life, and the sun was shining on it at just the right angle that took its shadow and spread it across the snow on the field beside it. As the shadow covered that field, I said, look, children, at that truck, and look at its shadow. If you had to be run over, which would you rather be run over by? Would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow? My youngest child said, the shadow couldn't hurt anybody. That's right, I continued, and death is a truck. But the shadow is all that ever touches the Christian. The truck ran over the Lord Jesus. Only the shadow has gone over mother. My friends, without a future resurrection, there would be no hope that death is but a shadow. Instead, unfortunately, without a future resurrection, death becomes the actual truck. And Jesus never gets back up. And we won't either. If we're going to have hope, then we must believe that Jesus will give us our bodies back because he got his back. And if we don't believe that, then we have no gospel, we have no truth, no power, and ultimately no hope. And finally, we, got, we have no reason. The last point that Paul makes is that there is no point. He's going to argue that it, it's all for nothing if there's no future resurrection. And he starts with possibly one of the hardest verses to understand in the whole Bible. you got to love 1 Corinthians. It's got a lot of tough, tough passages. Listen to this. It says in verse 29, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead was not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, you may read that and be like, where in the world is that coming from? And what does that have to do with our subject? And I'm going to show you, I think it's pretty easy to understand, actually. And it makes a lot of sense with where he puts it. First of all, let me say this. I'm going to do a little sidebar here for a second. With this, we, we know what this does not mean, Okay. Um, because whenever there's a tough verse in the Bible uh, to understand, we use what we call the analogy of Scripture. 
Uh, it's the principle that the word of God is is it's uh, it's self-authenticating, right? It's it's its own interpreter. So when I find a difficult passage, I look at other passages to give clarity to that passage. Um, we have uh, from the Reformation back in the 16th century, they called this the sola scriptura. Scripture alone was the idea. Charles Hodge in his basic theology put it this way. He says, if the scriptures be what they claim to be, the word of God, they are the work of one mind, and that mind divine. From this it follows that scripture cannot contradict scripture. God cannot teach in one place anything which is inconsistent with what he teaches in another. Hence, scripture must explain scripture. So I say all that to say we know this verse does not teach some kind of a vicarious or proxy baptism uh, for the dead, as claimed by like the Mormon church, for example, that somehow you can baptize people who have died without Christ, and that will then somehow get them out of hell or purgatory, whatever version of the afterlife they have, and get them into, into heaven. We know this because Hebrews 9 speaks of once death happens, then comes judgment. Ephesians 2 says it's by grace alone, through faith alone, that you're saved in Christ. This means, very simply, let me put it to you simply, it means heaven is single file. Okay, maybe even six feet of separation. I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> right? You stand before God on your own, and you're judged based on what you do with Jesus. This makes it impossible to believe that getting dunked under water is going to have any, any effect on anybody who has died before you. Plus, on top of all of that, getting dunked in water isn't going to do anything for your eternal soul anyway. Right Again, Ephesians 2, grace alone through faith alone. If a person cannot save themselves by being baptized, they certainly cannot save anybody else by that means. All right, so we said, we've explained what it doesn't mean. So what does it mean then? And I think it has everything to do with this little phrase, the word, the, the phrase on behalf of. Okay, there's quite a few ways to translate that. There's an original Greek word in that. I'm not going to bore you with that. But there, there's, a, there's lots of ways to translate it. And one possible way to translate that is to translate it on account of or because of, which would be something like this. Why are people being baptized because of the dead? Now, that starts to make a lot more sense in our context. Here's what Paul is getting at. People were coming to faith in Christ and getting baptized because of the testimony of others who had died in faith in Christ. They were probably giving testimony, as we do in our church, before baptism, of how, how some Christians who had died had a profound impact upon their life, and they were getting baptized because of their testimony, because of the dead, because of how they faced death uh, in faith, and it impacted them. I mean, think about how many of you have come to faith in Christ and been baptized because of the impact of someone you loved who died? Maybe it was a grandfather or a grandparent or someone you know that, that died in faith and that impacted your life and therefore you became a Christian. That's what's going on here. So, and let's put that in the context. Paul's saying this, what is the point? What is the point if we will not be raised and Christ was not raised? What he's saying is, is that, that it is great that you feel moved to have faith like your grandfather had faith when he died, but my friend, if, the God, if, the, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and we didn't rise from the dead, then your grandfather died for nothing. He, he, he died if there's no resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, then he died for nothing. That's what he says. So why are we doing this? Why are you getting baptized as being inspired by people who died in faith? Why are you doing that? That's why he goes on to talk about himself in verse 30. He's basically, what's the point of suffering for Christ as well if there's no future hope? If death is the final word, then what are we doing? 
Why are we even professing faith? Why are we getting baptized? Why are we suffering for Christ? What is the point? So we look at that. He says, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, which I have in Christ. I die every single day. Paul knew the, the commands of Jesus in the gospel that if you're going to follow him, Jesus said to take up what? Take up your cross and follow him and die daily. Listen to Matthew 10. It says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus was saying, John 12, 24, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And to that, Paul says, why? What are we doing? If there's no resurrection of our bodies and Jesus didn't get his body back, then what are we doing with all this suffering? He's saying that basically if death has the last word, then all of this Christianity stuff is just rubbish. He's like, what's the point of suffering? What's the point of being mocked? What's the point of working to get the gospel out to people, he says, who, who want to tear him apart like a lion would in the Colosseum? Like, why do all that if death has the final word? That's why he says in verse 32, he says, let us, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Basically, Paul says, you know, let's just, let's just throw a party and let's try to numb ourselves and let's try to forget that any of this Jesus stuff even happened. Right? That's what he says. He quotes, this is a quote from uh, Isaiah twenty-two thirteen, where Jerusalem was besieged by Assyria. And instead of the people of, of, of in Jerusalem, the people of God repenting and turning to God, they decided instead to have an end of the world party, basically. <laughs> like, let's, just, let's just party. We're all going to die. It doesn't matter. So Paul's point is that if Jesus is dead and there's no hell and there's no heaven and there's no eternity and there's no judgment, then what in the world are we doing? Why? Why serve anybody but ourselves? Why give anything away? Why forgive anyone? Why not just take vengeance out in our own hands? You know, there are bad guys to shoot. There's bodies to bury. There's things to do, right? <laughs> Let's just go just take care of everything on our own. Let's, let's just do whatever we want. But because Jesus did rise, and because we will rise, Paul admonishes them here at the end of our passage and says, basically, wake up. Right? That's what he says. Wake up from your drunken stupor. And he talks about this whole bad company uh, ruins good morals. And that was apparently a phrase that the Corinthians knew much about. It was a common phrase in their culture. And what he's saying is that you guys are listening to the wrong people. You're listening to this Greek cult you live in who believe that you're basically a hermit crab and you're going to get rid of this body. A body doesn't matter. You can live however you want. And there's not, you're just going to die and you're going to go six feet under and it's not going to be anything. It's the end. It's all there is. So let's just live it up now. He says, you're listening to the wrong people. He says, uh, so he says to stop dragging Jesus' name through the dirt, to wake up and realize that we will get our bodies back and that means something now. You see, how do we know? Chris, how do you know? How do you know we're going to get our bodies back? I understand the Corinthian struggle, you might say. Right? I, too, have never seen someone come back from the dead. I can go to the graveyard and the bodies are still there. How do I know? How do I know this is not it? And the answer is that we know we'll get our bodies back because Jesus died to get our bodies back. Right? When Jesus went to the cross... He purchased for you, and understand this, he purchased for you not just a, a get-out-of-hell-free ticket. 
He didn't just purchase for you forgiveness for your sins. He didn't just purchase reconciliation with your creator. He purchased for you not only a, a new identity as a child of God, he purchased for you a new body one day. Part of his death was to get you a new body one day. They won't ever fail and never fall apart and never be in, in sin anymore. Think about that. Go back to the gospel story. Go back to the cross in your mind's eye. Think about it. Jesus, as the God creator, as we memorized this week in Colossians 1, gave his body so that you could have a new body. His hands, which were used to, to heal, were pierced. His feet, which were used to carry him to the least of these, was nailed to a tree. His face which smiled upon little children, was beaten to a pulp. His mouth, which was used to proclaim the good news that he was there to save them from their sins, was pummeled. His blood, which flowed through his veins to make it possible to live a life that we could not ever live, was was poured out for us. And his body, which was without sin, was broken for us. He gave up his body to the executioners willingly so that you might have a perfect body one day purged of every ounce of sin. That was all part of the cross. And Jesus will keep that body. Think about this. He'll keep that body for all eternity. He'll forever be God-man. When Jesus, in the incarnation, took on human flesh, he'll forever have that body. We learned, again, in Colossians 1 this week, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He makes God visible to us. And it'll be that way forever. This is why, after the resurrection, a few of the accounts, he remember Thomas? He told him to, to, to put his finger in his side and in his, in his wrist, and you could see the nail holes that were there. He was a physical human being. That's why he, he, ate, uh, he ate a breakfast on a beach with the disciples, you know, and he ate fish there. And uh, that's why he, when he ascended in Acts 1, he went up into the air with a physical body, and the angels said to the disciples, hey, he's going to return in the same way you see him go. In other words, he's coming back with a body. In other words, he didn't go back to heaven and, and shed the body and become a ghost. Jesus maintains right now, at this very moment, a body. And that means when we, when we get our body back, we'll be on a resurrected earth with the resurrected Christ and our resurrected bodies. And we'll see God face to face. That's all because of the gospel. Listen to this, Revelation 21, 3 and 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place. The, the word there is the word for a tabernacle in the Old Testament. The, the tent of God is with man. He himself. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You only do that with a body, (laughs) right? He'll have a body. We'll have a body. This all means that we do have the gospel. We do have good news. This means we have truth. We have power. We have hope. We have reason for living for Jesus today. And this truth to transform how we live, we should wake up Right? We, we've been lulled to sleep. Think about how slowly we have been lulled to sleep by the culture who live like this world is it, who live like the grave is all there is, but we know that that's not all there is and that there's so much more of life after that. This should lead to some examination. Let me end with a few questions we can ask ourselves. What is it about your life that doesn't make sense unless Jesus is raised from the dead? What decisions are you making that only make sense if Jesus is alive and you're going to get your body back one day? What sacrifices have you made in your life that only make sense if the grave is not the end? What areas of your life are unexplainable to the world, to where they look at you strange because you believe Jesus is alive and you're going to get your body back? 
My friends, we have hope in the gospel, and that gospel truth is that one day we're going to get our bodies back. And next week, we're going to spend, because you may be asking what they ask, next verse, they're going to ask, how is this going to happen and what is it going to look like? And that's exactly what we'll look at next week. We'll look at what our new glorified bodies are going to look like, our resurrected bodies, and how they'll be the same, and yet how they'll be very different at the same time. It'll be a fun study together, but it has a huge impact upon how we live now. Let's seek to make much of Jesus, glorify him in our bodies that we have now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. It's not something that just kind of makes us feel better for the moment. It's not something that just gets us out of bed in the morning. It's not something that's just temporary. God, the gospel is something that means eternity is ours with you. The gospel means that you took on our sin and you died, you rose again, so that one day we'll rise again with new bodies and live forever on an earth that we were always meant to live on, an earth without sin and decay and brokenness, have relationships that there's no more brokenness there, there's no more separation, there's no more bitterness God, there's no more of that going on in our relationships. We look forward to that day that we can be with you. Help us in light of that, uh, to live that out now in our current relationships and how we see the world and how we see you. In Jesus' name, amen.